And uh, our passage this morning, we're going to look at the second half of chapter 18. We looked last week at the first half of chapter 18. Let me turn there real quick. I'll be using the ESV version of the Bible. So the first half of Genesis 18 is this really interesting story about visitors who come to Abraham and Sarah. There's three of them. They come in the middle of the day, and Abraham and Sarah show them incredible hospitality. And we find out through the course of the story that these visitors are actually the Lord himself with two angels. So it's an incredible picture of God coming to Abraham, God coming to Sarah. And we noticed last week that most of the interaction, the reason that God came in this particular way at this particular time was for Sarah. He was sharing with Sarah the fact that in one year's time, she was going to have Isaac. She was going to have the child of promise. God was going to come through on all of his promises, and she laughed in his face. That was the interesting part of the story last week. Sarah laughed in the face of the Lord. But this week, it's still interaction between God, this visitation from God, these three visitors, and Abraham. So it's changing gears slightly. And uh, we're going to start with verse 16. So here we go, starting with verse 16. Then the men set out from there, that is Abraham walking with these three visitors. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, that is Abram, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. 
Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak about this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Yep, it's going to be a fun one. It was night. And as you well know, visibility is compromised at night. It's hard to see where you're going. We were on a road near the coast of Florida. This was about two weeks ago. And because it was night, there were things happening on this road that were a little scary. 30A is the road we were on, and it's where all of the uh, beachgoers come out at night to go celebrate and have fun together. And one of them was having fun with her little puppy dog. And she was just walking down the street with some friends, and somebody who was obviously uh, had a little too much to drink that evening set off some fireworks just beside her, and her precious little puppy darted out into the traffic, and because it was dark, the car that was directly in front of us ran over the dog. Sad moment. And the most, mostly sad because I saw the woman react. She was on the side of the road, and she screamed and tried to run so quickly out into the traffic that she actually fell flat on her face and skinned up her whole body. And when she finally reached the puppy that was in the middle of the road, it was stiff as a board, you know, kind of cocked to one side. And Christy and I assumed didn't make it. So Christy jumps out of the car because we're the first ones there on the scene. And she says, how can we help? Is there anything we can do for your puppy? And she's like freaking out, as you might imagine, because her dog's just been hit. And she says, yes, please take me to the vet, the hospital, the whatever. So Christy's like, okay. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I'm behind the drive. She grabs Lyndon. They run around to my parents' car who was behind us. And my parents were the ones who were truly freaking out because they thought a child had been hit on the road uh, and not the puppy. But nonetheless, she climbs into my car with this stiff board of a puppy that's bleeding all over my seats. And I'm like, let's do this. To the hospital we shall go. Well, as I start looking up on my phone, yes. I was texting while I was driving, so I apologize for that part of the story. But we eventually found a hospital for dogs that was open 24 hours near the coast, and it happened to be about an hour and a half away. So I was like, would it be possible for you to call up one of your friends and them to drive you? And she said yes. And, um, but the entire time, she was absolutely in shock. She was freaking out. She was crying. She was convulsing. But pray, So I started praying. Right? That's what you do in these kind of situations. At least I do as a minister. And two minutes into the ordeal, the dog wakes up. Yay. Answered a prayer right there. And it starts panting and just looking around. <laughs> and it, just acting like it was fine. It was not fine, but it acted like it was fine. And so we get into the parking lot where her friend's going to pick her up. And she is like, are we going to do this? And, the, and I thought the hospital's up closer and there's this that thing. And, and I just put my hands on her and I was like, can I pray for you? I'm a minister. And so I pray, and there's this beautiful time of a little bit of relaxation, a little bit of rest. I pray for the dog, pray for her heart. And, you know, she didn't go to church. She didn't know, uh, really have much exposure to God. But I was like, God, 
had us here at this time, in this place. And her father, who texted me later, like that week, said the exact same thing. He's like, thank the Lord that there was a guardian angel on 30A that night to take care of my little girl. And it was a reminder to me as I dove into this passage in Genesis chapter 18 of the fact that God often speaks with us first. You know, I mentioned that earlier in our service when we were looking at the uh, passages, the affirmation of faith, the confession of sin. God initiates in our life. And that's what I told her as she exited the car to go with her friends. I was like, God was here for you tonight. It's not about Nathan. It's not about me. It's about someone who could speak the words of God of comfort into her life in that exact moment of struggle. The one who helps, right? The Ebenezer. Here I place my Ebenezer. And that's what, exactly what we're seeing with Abraham in this passage. What we're going to see is that God is the great initiator in this story. God is the one who is actually leading Abraham in his prayers for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Excitingly, we're going to get to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah much more fully in the coming weeks. Uh, It's a little bit crazy also. But for now, we're hearing Abraham's prayer about these two cities that are pretty famous in the early part of the Bible. So let's dive into God's initiative in this particular passage as Abraham prays to him, prays with him this morning. So first of all, the first thing we see is that God initiated an entire day of fellowship and friendship with Abraham. That's the setup for this part of the story. It was God who came to Abraham. He visited him and Sarah in this time when they showed hospitality, brought out food and drinks for these visitors, the Lord and these two angels that came and hung out underneath the tree. And so in a sense, Abraham had already been praying all day. He had spent the entire day eating food, talking with, fellowshipping with these visitors, who is the Lord and two angels underneath the tree. It's awesome. And it's, it's neat to see how God fostered and developed that relationship. You know, the same is actually true for us even today. You know, one of the ways that God speaks to us is not only through other people as they pray for us, but God's word, right? It's why we're here. It's why we study in, uh, the chapter of the Bible from Genesis chapter 18, and we read other parts of the Bible, is that we believe that it's God's speaking to us. It's his initiative towards us. And so it takes, I encourage all of us, in the same way Abraham had this day of fellowship and of communion with God, that is why we're encouraged to read our Bible on a regular basis. I encourage all of us, read your Bible a little bit. It's God, think of it as him speaking to you, speaking with you. It's not just, oh, okay, I got to open this thing. I don't really, you know, kind of figure out what's going on here. But let him speak. Take some time to let him talk. And then our prayers back to him are just a response to that. We get to respond to his word as he works within us, as he brings things to mind in our own life. It's how we cultivate fellowship with God. You know, that's one of the, uh, the Pew um, study. You guys ever heard of this? Like it's this grand data gathering service and they call up phone people on the phone or send them online interviews or whatever and they gather data mostly about church related things the pew data came out about why do people go to church and why do people especially go to church on a regular basis and far and away the number one reason was to get closer with god 
Then there's like a bunch of other little secondary ones. Like I want my kids to be taught good lessons. I want, you know, my family to be exposed to other people, you know, blah, 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 blah. There's a whole other list of things. But far and away, number one answer, closer to God. That's exactly what Abraham is experiencing here. And it's not something, it's something that actually we can experience in a very similar way as we engage with God uh, through his word and through prayer. It's something that has to be cultivated, though. Right? Just think about your human relationships. Think about your family, your friends. How do you cultivate a relationship with someone? Not through Facebook. <laughs> right? It's face-to-face interaction, talking, conversing, hearing. That's, it's an incredibly important part to fostering any relationship in our life, but especially with God himself. Okay. Second thing, that's the first thing. The first thing is that God has already initiated this whole day of fellowship with Abraham. So the relationship is already kind of kicked off, and they're having a great time conversing with one another. Now, God has this question thrown in here. He says, am I going to share with Abraham my intentions for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? And he ends up deciding yes. Because of my relationship with Abraham, I'm going to tell him about what's happening with Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, there is an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah that is so great and their sin is so grievous, there's going to be judgment. Now let's understand what's going on here for just a minute. The first thing is, there's an outcry. This Hebrew word outcry basically means that God has been hearing the cries of the victims of violent injustice. That's what that means. And so the the, um, idea from the Old Testament would be that there are people in Sodom and Gomorrah oppressing others, not necessarily within the city, but oppressing others. They're oppressing the marginal, they're oppressing the weak, and they're oppressing the poor. And if you can get anything out of the Old Testament, it's that God cares deeply, like core of his heart is for the weak, the poor, the widows, the orphans. God cares so incredibly deeply for people in those type of situations. And he's saying they're being abused and beaten and there's an outcry. My justice must be served in this particular instance. Now, as a reminder, injustice does not go unrecorded by God anywhere at any time. It sometimes feels like that, right? Because he allows it to happen often, but it's not unrecorded. God knows God cares. And we're seeing that here in Genesis chapter 18. And one of the ways we're seeing how God cares is he says this in in verse 21 of Genesis 18. I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Y'all, this phrase is totally for Abraham. God already knows what's going on down in Sodom and Gomorrah. God knows everything that's happening. This is him guiding gently and leading Abraham to share his heart for what's happening in this city. He's introducing Abraham to the idea of real injustice. And at the same time, he's introducing Abraham to his mercy. Right? So when people hear about God's judgment, the wrath of God, you know, we often kind of have a visceral feeling when things like that are talked about. Because we often, I, I'll speak for myself, often associate the wrath of God or the judgment of God with human wrath and human anger. 
which is often not fully informed, right? We're, <laughs> this happens to me at our house all the time. I hear the kids screaming in the living room, Oh, Daddy, oh, you hit me! You know, we're going, what's going on? And I'm like, did you hit her, Hunter? Because Lyndon was the one who screamed first. <laughs> so I'm like, Hunter, what are you doing hitting your little sister? Rah! You know, take him and throw him. Well, okay, I don't really do that, but take him very gently put him in his room, close the door, or something along those lines. But the bottom line is I walk back out there, and Andrew is like, Dad, um, it's really not Hunter's fault. And I'm like, nuts! That's human wrath, right? We do not ever have all of the information. <laughs> and so most of the time, our judgment of other people, our wrath is unjust in and of itself. One of the ways that Jesus deals with this in the chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew that we studied this past year is Jesus says this to us, to everyone. Don't judge. He just, he just lays it out there. Do not judge other people. It's that same verse where it says, pull the speck out of your own, or pull the plank out of your own eye before you even begin to look at the speck in someone else's eye. And God's basically saying, look, you can't ever be fully informed. You can't ever know someone's motives. You can't ever really dig into the bottom of someone's heart. You can't be in a position to judge. It's kind of hard to hear, isn't it? I love to judge, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a pro. Somebody cuts me off in traffic, I need to judge you. I need to judge you by getting up on your tail. I need to judge you by showing you that I don't like you, right? Because they might be, it might be someone pregnant in the back seat and they're on the way to the hospital, but you still cut me off. <laughs> Again, I'm not fully informed. And so what, what God is showing Abraham here is I'm fully informed. I'm going to be fully informed. If I make a judgment against a people, a place, it is always on the basis of knowledge, And my knowledge is always tempered with mercy. I know motives. I know what's going on. But again, God saying that to Abraham is not for God's sake. It's for Abraham's sake. He's saying, Abraham, get my heart. Get my heart. And so what we find is, Abraham does begin to get the heart of God in this prayer that he says to the Lord. Because in verse 22, it says, the men, the angels that were with the Lord... They went away and went towards Sodom to go investigate. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So here they are. Here's the setup. It's just God and Abraham together, relationally talking, praying. The other two angels that were with him are gone. And there's just a pause. There's a silence. There's a waiting period. Because next, it's going to be Abraham's turn to what? Respond the initiative of God. And how does he respond? It's really interesting. Um, He says, okay, Lord, why can't you have mercy too? Why can't you have mercy on the righteous uh, that are in this city? Now, before we get into that, I want to mention a couple quick things. Because we talked about it earlier when we did our affirmation of faith. A couple quick things. Have you ever thought about the fact that it is God who is the one that initiates in getting us to pray? Right? I often think of it as 
uh, I just kind of been cooking up some stuff to pray about. Right? I got a little few moments. I'm driving in my car, going to Kroger, and I'm like, okay, Lord, let's do some praying. Uh, yeah, uh, my family. Grandma and granddaddy, help them have a good day today. Help Michael to, uh, you know, love life, something along those lines. And we think we're, right, at the time, we think we're cooking it up. Wow, man, I just nailed it. I just prayed for like half my list. It was awesome. But we have to remember that when we're in silence before God, when we're really listening, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 kicks in. Because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. There's another passage, Romans chapter 8, says, We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. You see, this is ultimately God's answer to this age-old question. If God is totally sovereign, totally in control, and has planned out all of history, why pray? Why pray? Right? He's got it all figured out. He's got it all planned out. What's the point in praying? So if we believe that about God, we believe he is in charge and in control of all. His prayer is his means to accomplish his will. He is the one who brings to our hearts what to pray about because he wants to accomplish something through our prayers. It's actually something God does in our life. If we're willing to give him a little bit of space, if we're willing to listen to what he wants to show us and share with us, he's gonna, he is going to put burden us with the things that he wants to bless and the things he wants to accomplish. It's amazing if you really think about it. Y'all, this one kind of hit me. This, I was like, what? But I could not avoid it. From all of Scripture, New Testament, back here, Genesis 18, Old Testament, it is God who brings prayer concerns to our minds. And God waits for us to pray along with him. It's very much this idea of joining God in what he is already doing. It's a privilege to be invited into this. And that's exactly what Abraham is invited into in our passage this morning. So let's dive into Abraham's prayer and see how this plays out when he's praying to the Lord. His prayer is sort of a puzzle. It looks a little bit like bargaining at the market, doesn't it? Okay, if there's 50, will you save it? God, will you save the city and not bring your judgment upon it? And God's like, yes, yes, if there's 50. He's like, let me, let me, let me try it again. 45. If there's 45, will you save it and not judgment on it? Yes, yes, says the Lord. You know, thir- wait, 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 40. You know, if there's 40, will you save it, please? Just do it for 40. And God's like, yes. Wait, but what about 30? I mean, it's, it's an interesting, like, it looks like some sort of haggling is going on, right? But there's two things we need to notice in this prayer. The first thing we need to notice is the fact that Abraham understands his place. He is not trying to tell God what to do. He says, Lord, if I can speak for a moment. He, he is very much humbled in this passage. He's like, I, he says very early on, I am but dust and ashes before you, God. You are the one who is in control. He knows his place. He's praying out of a place of humility. But he's also very concerned with the honor of God. It's not just about himself. 
right? This prayer is not just uh, my brother. Uh, I mean, my nephew and his family are still in that town. Can you get them out? That's all I really care about, God. That's not what's going on here. He's very concerned about God's honor. He says, Lord, are you really going to do this? Are you going to do judgment on this town? Uh, because I've heard about your mercy too, and I've watched you be incredibly merciful to me. You have forgiven me. I have failed you already multiple times. And so I understand your mercy. And so what's going on here? What's happening here? It's a strange little passage for us this morning. But basically, Abraham is digging into one of the theological concerns at the core of all of reality. This is, he is in deep waters, folks. Because here's what he's really asking. The question behind the question is this. Can the many be saved by the righteousness of the few? Can the wicked many be saved by the righteousness of the few? Right? And so he's boiling it down. He's checking. He's like asking a theological question. If there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10, notice where he doesn't go at the very end. What's the next logical step for him to ask after 10? One. He doesn't go there. He doesn't say, okay, Lord, okay, final question. Lord, if there's one in the city who's righteous, will you save the whole city on the basis of that one? But he knows in his heart, both about himself and about Lot, he's come to the understanding that I can't stand in for this city. Lot, my nephew, I mean, we read about Lot earlier. He's probably not going to be the one who stands in for this city. There's no one righteous. And he's beginning to discover this. It's, a, it's something that the book of Romans in the New Testament talks about really early on. Chapter 3 of Romans says there is no one righteous, not even one. And this is what Abraham is digging into. He's digging into, can the many be saved by the few? And so the New Testament takes it to the next stage. And here's the question the New Testament asks, and the thing that we celebrate over and over Can the many, God, can the wicked many be saved by the righteousness of the one? And God's answer in the New Testament throughout Scripture is absolutely 100% yes. But it has to be someone who is perfectly righteous, and it has to be my own son. That's the theological conundrum that is happening as we dive into Sodom and Gomorrah, is that there's no hope. This judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is like a picture. It's a picture from the Old Testament of there isn't hope. Without the righteousness of someone, of a few, there's no hope for the many. So it's a puzzle, yes, but it's also Abraham coming to understand what the gospel is really all about. And so here's how Romans puts it. If you want to turn with me, you can, but you don't have to. Romans chapter 5 is where... Um, Paul, so this is Abraham dealing with God about how are you going to save wicked people. But Paul deals with it in the New Testament in Romans. Paul the Apostle wrote the book of Romans. And in chapter 5 of Romans, he says this. I'm going to start with verse... uh, Let's start with verse 15. He's talking about Jesus. And he says this, Paul says this. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that is, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift, flowing, free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, verse 17, For if, because of one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul, it's it's the theological conundrum at the center of the universe, and Paul's wrestling with it in chapter 5 of Romans. All sin comes to the world through the one man, Adam. Can all the world be saved through the one man, Jesus Christ? And the answer over and over in the Bible is, yes, absolutely. There is hope, there's forgiveness, there is life, there is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which says, absolutely, God's plan has always been to save the many through the one. So that's, so a couple of applications from this passage. So cool. What a cool passage. I love this, uh, this chapter as Abraham is, is learning all kinds of stuff. He's learning how to pray. He's learning about God's, um, the way God is going to deal with sin in the world. And he's also learning about what it means to have a deep relationship with God. So how, what do we take away from this? There's, I think there's a few things for us. The first is we also get the privilege of joining God in blessing the world. I mean, how cool is that? How amazing that we, through our prayers, through our effective prayers that he is going to place on our hearts, are going to literally change the world. That gives me a new, uh, gives me, uh, hopefully for y'all too, a new perspective on prayer. It's not just like, oh, brother, yeah, I got to do a little praying this morning. Oh, no, add it to my, I got to have my great nuts and I got to pray for a little bit. Ugh. But it's, it's much more along the lines of, Wow. You mean, we, Christ Central, we, me as an individual, I get to join God in this incredible plan of redemption he has for the world? Let's get to it! <laughs> this afternoon, time to pray. So that's the first thing. We get to join God. What a privilege. And, and seeing others come to faith, and seeing uh, injustice pushed back as we pray for God's blessing. The second thing is, um, let's not forget the humility that's in this passage and that God asks of us, right? Humility is at the very heart of Abraham's prayer. Humility is at the heart of love. And humility is at the heart of what God is doing in all of our lives. Humility is recognition that God is in control and I'm just joining him, right? It's like the gas for the engine of love, the gas for the engine of love is humility. We see it in James chapter 4. James chapter 4 says, look, your prayers aren't getting answered. <laughs> James is admitting that. He's like, because what you're praying for is just to spend things on your own pleasures. He's like, this isn't, this is not, you're not, let, you're not sitting in quietness and letting God really bring to heart what he wants you to be praying for. This is not the release of blessing that God talks about in scriptures. You're just praying so that you can get the new boat. 
<laughs> and you know what? God may not want you to have the new boat. He might. Hey, wouldn't that be sweet? But that might not be his plan for the year. It's for you to get a new boat. So the, the idea is, y'all, in humility, let's let God speak to us about what he wants us to pray for and join him on this incredible adventure of seeing his blessings explode out into this world around us. Um, I think that's what James is getting at. Y'all, humility is submission of our plans and desires to God. Humility is salvation in believing in the one for the many. Humility is treating others better than ourselves, And humility is the way that we love the world. And it's what God works in the hearts of his people through prayer. Let's pray. Hey, I'm going to take a minute to just, like, let God, like, not just say what is on my mind, but let him kind of speak for a minute. I've got to do more of that in humility. Lord, thank you for the way that we can encounter you in Genesis. Lord, I'm not sure exactly what you want to do through this church. I don't know what you want to do even in Charlottesville at large, Lord. But we know we've seen a lot of injustice. And Lord, we know we want to see you work. We want to see you redeem. We want to see you glorified and honored, Lord. Help us to be a church, Lord, that prays through the outcry. Lord, burden us. Burden us for the injustice that's in this world. May our prayers reflect the outcry that goes out even from people today. People who are oppressed, the poor, the weak, the marginal, the orphans, the widows, Lord. I pray that our heart would be the same as yours, that we would go to the places we need to go, that we would pray for the people that you lay upon our hearts, Lord, that we would be a church, Lord, that unleashes your goodness through prayer on this place. Lord, thank you for the one that saved the many. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Let's see if the kiddos are coming in. Yep, yep. Are they, Brian, can you check and make sure they're, are they, are they heading this way? Rock on. Kiddos are fun to have, aren't they? Most of the time? We'll let them come in before we get started. Well, hello there. Welcome back. Hello, hello. Hi. So this meal that we're about to take together is one more picture of the one for the many, right? We as a body of believers, as a, as a collection of people, are going to remember the one, the one whose righteousness is given to us as our sin is given to him. Let's now feast uh, in this meal that Jesus is the one who instituted this meal. And so we eat it along with his instructions.
that on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. If I can find it, it's somewhere down here. There it is. This is my body. See, there it is. Uh, which is broken for you. I want you to eat this, Jesus said, in remembrance of the fact that I was broken for you. And so we ask, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, feast away. If you don't know him as your Savior, you're still trusting in your own goodness, we would ask that you let the elements pass by and just reflect upon, hey, do I believe that the one really does save the many, including me? Uh, and take some time to reflect. David, you mind take this pen? And just pull off a piece, and then we'll partake together um, once we all have a, a been served.